Well, coming off the weekend, we are back in on the Fight Freaks Unite recap podcast. I am the somewhat capable host. Full disclosure here, we're doing this on Sunday night. And one of my other duties is Dan knows and he's smiling at me right now because I look haggard, even though you can't see me. Haggard is a good word. Disheveled, etc. I have been uh, part of the thrilling Tampa Bay Buccaneer win in the final seconds over the L.A. Rams. American football, for those of you that are out of the country, it's king in this country. So in that role, in that vein, I've been in Tampa at Raymond James Stadium with all of that going on. But I've gotten in here with my man, Dan Rayfield, Sunday night into Monday morning to recap the fights and this weekend. So first of all, good to be with you as part of the podcast in the recap mode. Good to talk to you. We have a lot to cover. How are things? Things are good because the Giants did not lose today since they had a bye week. (laughs) That is good uh, on that front. A lot of wild and crazy NFL. Again, thank you for finding us. However you've done so, Dan's uh, social media, Fight Freaks Unite, Substack, Big Fight Weekend website, etc. Make sure you're following. Make sure you're subscribing, as we keep saying, because we come your way with the recap podcast off the weekend, usually out late Sunday into Monday morning. Uh, coming off the weekend to recap everything, preview comes your way on Fridays. The Big Fight Weekend Preview, you get both of those. If you're on the feed, make sure you're subscribing, um, and you will get the notifications therein if you are doing so. All right, so I wish this was a better circumstance to begin the podcast, but obviously, Dan, as you reported on Sunday night, when I got done with the Buccaneer thrilling win over the Rams, you had already gotten in touch with me that, hey, there's a serious situation involving Idos Yerbalsanuli, uh, the fighter from Kazakhstan who fought David Morrell Saturday night in Minnesota, Showtime PBC main event. So pick it up from there as we tape things here on Sunday night on what we know, what you reported, and the seriousness of the situation. Well, in the main event of that card, it was a completely one-sided fight. You know, entertaining, exciting, but really one-way traffic. David Morrell was delivering a very frightful beating to uh, uh, Yerbalsanuli, who showed a lot of heart, a lot of grit, a lot of toughness, got dropped uh, in the 12th round, then a little while, then got a point deducted because he was so a, trying to stay away from the incoming on the on the follow-up attack, got a point taken off by Tony Weeks, the referee, and then a few seconds later, suffered a very hellacious knockout, beautiful right hook from David Morrell, who really was just much better than him in terms of the speed, the accuracy, the combination punching the strength, the skills. I mean, basically checked every box that he had the advantage. Uh, and he knocked him out and, you know, weeks properly immediately stopped the fight. And uh, to show you the kind of guy that David Morell is, seconds later, he actually, uh, when when uh, when he stood up, he almost fell down again. And David Morell was right there to help him along with weeks to get him to the corner, to get him on the stool. And he got immediate medical attention. He was taken to the hospital as Showtime uh, said on its uh, broadcast as it was coming to an end. Uh, the post-fight press release from the PBC folks also indicated he was taken to the local hospital in Minneapolis. And as I reported on Sunday, uh, he is in a medically induced coma. And And I have covered these types of stories before. What that means is the doctors uh, put a patient who has a brain injury in a medically induced coma because what it does is it allows the brain to rest. It al- allows the swelling to go down. There's probably a good chance that he had surgery. What they do is by opening the skull and putting him into the coma, you're allowing the brain to expand. And then while he's in a coma, it's not using up the energy or however you want to describe it. And it allows it to rest and to hopefully for the swelling to go down. If it's if your brain is swelling, it needs room to move. And so that's why they do that. Now, I don't have the confirmation so much on the surgery, but the bottom line was uh, my sources tell me he had 
uh, being placed in that medically induced coma. And unfortunately in boxing, that's the byproduct of a tough fight and a, a brain bleed is what it occurs. A subdural hematoma to want to get technical. Um, sometimes guys come out of that and they're okay. We've seen examples of that. Daniel Frankel, for example, from a few years ago, he doesn't necessarily uh, have perfect health at this point. He didn't, you know, he had to obviously give up his boxing career, but he's alive. Uh, you know, he can talk, he can operate. I actually have seen him in person and talked to him post the injury. And, uh, you know, if you didn't know he had a brain injury and you just met him for the first time, you wouldn't know it, even though I think those around him or close to him probably realize there's some differences. And unfortunately, a lot of people that have that situation, they ultimately pass away from that, uh, that medical situation. Right now, we're in a waiting period. We have to see how he is. Uh, the PBC people and TGB promotions they uh, and Showtime, they gave me a statement regarding it that I used in the story that I wrote about it. They did not acknowledge the specifics of his injury. They basically just, uh, if you read between the lines, they asked for prayers and for people to keep him in his family and him in their thoughts and that sort of thing. And that they're, you know, the PBC folks are there on the ground and TGB monitoring it, you know, trying to make sure I'm sure that, you know, wh whoever's there for him, uh, you know, has what they need taken care of. And uh, it becomes the waiting game. And uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But certainly uh, you give him a lot of credit for the toughness that the man showed in the fight. And you hope that in the end, he can somehow walk out of the hospital, be back with his family. And you also, from David Morell's point of view, you hope that a traumatic situation where your opponent has a serious injury doesn't ruin the rest of this very bright future for, you know, for his career. Sure. All of that is a great update and well said uh, on that. And we're mindful of this. It's why we're beginning the podcast with it um, as well. Uh, here on this and so now we'll get into this and it's very easy after the fact and look I've been doing this a long time you've been doing this a long time on how do you handle serious injury and I should say to the audience you may have a further update as Monday becomes Monday afternoon if you're hearing us later on Monday night Dan and I are doing this on the fly on Sunday night full disclosure this is the information we have we're going we're going forward it is very easy in these situations after the fact to come in and say more should have been done earlier. I thought watching this fight, man, he's taken a beating. Man, his face is swollen every which direction. He's not landing. There's not really a chance he's going to win this fight. That's easy for me to see, say sitting back watching it. Um, there are others who have been even more forceful and critical. Lou DiBella, you can see him on social media, was immediately critical of the referee, Tony Weeks, of the commission, the doctor, etc., looking at it and saying, essentially, I'm going to paraphrase here, somebody should have done something before that 12th round ever took I place. I didn't need to. Uh, okay, so go ahead. Lou. Go ahead. I didn't need to see Lou's tweets because I got the phone call. There you go. Heard his uh, point of so view So pick it up. It. Pick it up from there on the All criticism. Right, so go ahead. Here's the thing about it. Everybody wants to blame somebody. Now, there are times in these situations where there really, frankly, is nobody to blame. Boxing is a dangerous sport. That's one of the reasons that we like it in terms of uh, as fans because of the thrill and the excitement and seeing what these fighters and warriors, gladiators, what they do. They do put their lives on the line. It is not a cliche that when they step between their ropes, they do put their life on the line. That is an absolute fact. Uh, I have unfortunately been ringside when fighters have died or had serious injury. Um, it is not a joking matter. However, in this particular case, and and. I, I'm not somebody that has been over the years when these things have happened that automatically point fingers, jump on everything that moves and say, you're to blame, you're to blame, you're to blame. This particular case, I do feel like there is some, some blame to go around because this could have been avoided in my 
personal viewpoint. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a referee, but I've covered boxing for fucking two decades. I know what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. I felt like, and I think I tweeted something to the effect of how much he was getting the shit beat out of him at the time. That after about the eighth round, in my mind, as I'm watching this fight go, I'm like, this fight should be stopped. Because as you said, he is radically behind. He's lost every single round. Maybe he won one, maybe two. If he won a second one, it was because David Morrell decided to take a round off, not so much because the other guy did anything. Um, a punch stats from CompuBox are not the end-all, be-all by any means, but they back up what occurred in the fight. David Morrell landed double-digit punches in every single round. The other guy landed double-digit punches in one round, was beaten to the punch time and time and time again. Just a completely one-sided fight. Now, the doctor my memory serves correct, actually went to the corner between rounds, I want to say on at least two, maybe three occasions. If you're going to the corner after rounds to check on the opponent that many times, there's probably a good chance the fight could be stopped. The corner of of, uh, of Yerba Sanuli was living on planet delusion. Because if you listen to their commentary between rounds, they were basically telling their guy, hey, you got this, just suck it up, two more rounds, three more rounds, whatever it was. You know, you're you're this far away from being world champion. We can do this. We can get this. Meanwhile, he hasn't won a round. Maybe he mm -hmm. won one, like I said. He's taking an absolute shellacking. Morell is fast with his punches, right hooks, uh, straight left hands like that couldn't miss, just tattooing him with hard, clean punches. I feel it seemed like he had a broken nose in the earlier part of the fight. His face, as you mentioned, was swollen. He was bloody. And he wasn't going to quit, obviously. That's why we appreciate these fighters, because they have that never, uh, you know, give up attitude. But I feel like the combination of the ringside position, the commission, the corner, Tony Weeks, who I have massive respect for and have always considered, as long as I have written about boxing, to be one of the top referees in boxing. He's going to be a Hall of Famer someday. Maybe he could have taken it into his hands a little bit sooner. Uh, you know, thankfully, when the knockdown happened, the second one in the 12th round, you know, he didn't count. He just waved it immediately. Um, that was a good thing. And they got, you know, the man medical attention as quickly as humanly possible in the ring. But there's a lot of people that when they go back and look at that video and feel like what unfolded during the course of those 11 plus rounds are going to be second guessing themselves. And as I said, I'm not somebody that often will point the finger because I've seen these things happen. I mean, I'll give you an example. When Magomed Abdusalamov was injured, very, very severely in a fight at Madison Square Garden in the theater. Um, he ultimately, he he lived, he's brain damaged, and he's never going to be the same. And, you know, he, he obviously his career was over. A lot, of, a lot of finger pointing on that night. I said to people at the time that that happened. I was ringside for that fight. There was not a moment in that fight where I felt like that fight needed to be stopped. I was five feet from the ring. That fight was a tough, hard, you know, hard-hitting heavyweight fight. But never once did I feel like either a man was in danger of uh, that type of situation that, you know, stuff happens. And that was unfortunate. And obviously that, you know, as the lawsuits happen later, we, we learn of the massive uh, dereliction of duty behind the scenes by the commission that led to his, uh, his coma. In any event, this is not that case. This was a clear case of a guy taking absolute ass whooping mm -hmm. in a dangerous one-sided fight where at least in my opinion, felt like after about maybe eight rounds, that fight should have been called. So one more part of the dynamic, and this is this is clear. So the doctor can go make a recommendation, but ultimately Tony Weeks is in charge of making the decision about whether the fight, either that or the corner. The corner can say, and you just accurately pointed out, the corner's delusional uh, late in the fight. I agree completely with that word. 
of what are you watching? Why are you doing the pep talk thing in the 10th round in between the 10th and the 11th and in between the 11th and the 12th? Because it's obvious he has been beaten up. He has slowed down greatly. Dangerous. Okay. But just to clarify again, that's ultimately Tony Weeks or the corner that has to do it. It's not just the doctor. It's not like somebody else. Right. Jump However, up there and do that. If you know the way that top professional referees act, it is unheard of, unheard of for a ringside physician to recommend to a referee that they think the fight should be stopped for the referee to then not stop the fight. Right. Technically speaking, you're right. Only the referee can wave his arms and call the fight or the corner obviously can resign the fight. So if the ref and again, Tony Weeks, it, you know, most of the fights that Tony does, he's a he, he works for the Nevada State Athletic Commission. He's been involved in some of the biggest fights in boxing mm -hmm. history and uh, is a is a longtime Nevada referee. Trust me, Tony Weeks is a good enough referee, a knowledgeable enough referee, an experienced enough referee that if a ringside doctor tells him, hey, Tony, I think it's time to pull the plug. Tony's going to pull the plug. That's just a matter of fact. I right. mean, so from a technical point of view, you're right. The referee uh, can stop the fight, not the doctor. But it is extremely rare for it not to happen. The same way, and there, and again, we have some very famous examples of this, where a corner will throw in a towel, and I've seen this on at least two occasions that I can think of right off the top of my head. I'm sure there's more if we thought about it, where the corner will throw in the towel, literally in the middle of a round, and the referee disregards it and lets the fight continue. And that happened in the very uh, in a fight that uh, I was ringside for when Miguel Cotto uh, won the junior middleweight title at Yankee Stadium against Yuri Foreman. Foreman's corner was uh, throwing in the towel, and and uh, Arthur Mercanti, a very brave referee, I might add, uh, and I don't mean that in a good way, uh, <laughs> said no fight on. No, suck it up, champ, was I believe his words when he had a knee injury. And uh, there was a famous fight with Michael Katsidis in the UK uh, where the corner, um, where, the, where the, the towel was thrown in and the referee threw it out and amazingly uh, he came back and, and scored a knockdown in that fight and i wish i could remember the opponent's name off the top of my head but it was a very famous example and a good a, enough and, a, and an incredible fight of the year type fight but again it's uncommon but that happens but this was not that case yes and so again usually the corner is your point is the corner is um the corner is the most important one. They're usually agreed with it by the referee. If you don't think your guy has it anymore, then that's it. And so the obligation almost is the corner uh, in that instance. Okay. I, I thought of that famous example, by the way. It's Graham Earl, a fight yes. in, in uh, the Wembley Arena in yes. London in 2007, as I'm looking it up here on BoxRec. It was a WBO interim lightweight title match. And in that fight, uh, Graham Earl was taking an absolute shellacking and his corner threw in the towel, and I forget what round it was, but it was early. It was like the maybe the third round or the second round. And as soon as the referee, Mickey Van was the referee, he picked up the towel and he threw it out of the ring. And Graham Earl then responded by knocking Michael Casitas down. Ultimately, Casitas got up and ended up stopping him in the fifth round. But that was a massively dramatic moment in that fight. You don't see that too often. And then, of course, the example I gave you with uh, Miguel Cotto against Yuri Foreman in a Yankee Stadium many years ago. Um but what happened on Saturday, again, not that kind of situation. The, the corner was, in my opinion, massively derelict in its duty. And, I, and by the way, I say this, even if uh, he, uh, you know, Idos Yersabinuli somehow gets up and walks out of that hospital on his own and goes back to his family and lives out the, le the rest of his life, uh, does not change my opinion of the dereliction of duty that they committed on Saturday against. Agreed. Agreed.
Uh, let's hope for the best. And again, you may have a further update as you listen to us on better news. We hope not worse news, but you may have an update on better news as Monday becomes Monday afternoon, becomes Monday night with this situation in Minnesota. So again, we're not trying to trivialize this by talking about the other fights, but it's a recap podcast. So we'll go through this real quick. So Morell wins. We'll see what happens with his future. What else from that card before well, we move on that we should let me say this, by the way, just back to Morell for a quick second. Yep. His performance should not be overshadowed by this uh, situation because that kid looked like a future superstar the way he fought. You know, I saw some people suggesting this was a mismatch fight. I don't believe that. You had two undefeated fighters, one guy in uh, uh, Yersa Benulli with double the amount of professional fights that that uh, Morell had. Uh, David, they had a common opponent in Lennox Allen. Uh, David Morell went tw- went the 12-round distance against him. And, uh, you know, Yersa Benulli in his previous fight stopped him in the 10th round. So they had that was sort of like a way to compare them in some form or fashion. So this was in no way on paper a mismatch, even if uh, Morell was an outstanding amateur um, in any event. In terms of the rest of the card, uh, you know, look, it, was, uh, it wasn't the biggest names in the world. I mean, this was obviously a, a second-tier type of Showtime Championship boxing. I don't think they wanted to spend a huge amount of money on a fight card that was uh, on the same time as, you know, a clinching possible clinch. Well, it turned out to be a clinching World Series game and, and uh, college football and that sort of stuff. Um, but the undercard, you had Brian Mendoza, the middleweight, who took this fight on short notice. He had been on the on the lower part of the undercard. But when Yoelvis Gomez fell out of the uh, fight against Jason Rosario, who was the former unified junior middleweight champion with a wrist injury, Mendoza moved up the card and took that fight uh, in the in the co-feature. They fought at middleweight, and uh, Mendoza looked good. He scored what I think some people would consider an upset. He stopped uh, Rosario in the fifth round. Rosario's uh, been a guy with, that's been in some tremendously fun, exciting fights. He's got uh, good power, but he also never has had a very good chin. He got stopped, and after the fight, we'll see if it, if it turns out to – to be what he actually follows through on, but he said he's retiring and that that was it for him. Too many, uh, too many losses in that former, you know, in that fashion. So, uh, you know, if he does, if he does walk away, you know, Rosario had a good career, won the world title, unified world title against Julian Williams uh, back a few years ago and a, a really great performance where he went to Philadelphia, the hometown of, uh, of Julian Williams. And, and I was at that fight actually. Not only did he win, but he stopped him in front of the crowd. He stopped him in the fifth round. It was a great performance from him. He ended up losing the title in a unification against, uh, a three belt unification against Charlo, but uh, he had a good career. And then the other fight on the card, the opener, uh, I don't know how to say his name. It's Fyodor Sirkazan, I think it is. I'll go uh, with you on that. Uh, well, something along those lines. But but this is a a, a Ukrainian fighter that that is uh, now fighting in the United States. Him and his wife uh, have moved to South Florida. Probably your neighbors, maybe. Or I think they live in Fort Lauderdale, actually. Anyway, <laughs> he was. Uh, this was like the step up fight. He he was twenty zero coming into the fight. This was the opening bout on the show. He was taking a step up against the well-traveled, uh, but always durable type of not not, not necessarily durable, but a, a guy that will test your metal is Nathaniel Gallimore. Like if you can beat Gallimore, you might have a future. If you lose to Gallimore, you might want to reconsider things. And so this was definitely based on the opponents that he had faced before. This was a test for him, and he passed with flying colors. He, he won a shutout on one scorecard, and he won wide on the other two cards, like nine one and and uh, and. Uh, I don't know, eight, two or seven, three, but anyway, it was a good, a good performance from him. And he will move on in the middleweight division. They'll have an opportunity probably to do some other things. And so, uh, you know, good for him. And then of course, if you were paying attention to the, to the streaming fights that were on Showtime's uh, social media channels before the main telecast, you saw a couple of, uh, you know, familiar names, Julian Williams, who I mentioned as having uh, been beaten by uh, Rosario for his titles. He won uh, an eight round decision 
against uh, Rolando Mencia. And you had Andre Durrell, the veteran, who scored a 10th uh, round knockout in a light heavyweight fight against Unieska Gonzalez. That's actually a pretty good win for Durrell, who'd been off for 16 months. And uh, one can assume that based on that, he won't be retiring and he'll be looking for some type of opportunity. All right, so uh, there's the latest um, from the PBC show that took place. So we move on to the fight card from Matchroom Boxing that was earlier in the afternoon, U.S. time, prime time in Europe, for Dimitri Bivol's WBA light heavyweight title defense as he fought Gilberto Zerto Ramirez, the Mexican uh, unbeaten former super middleweight champ. So let's get into that. Uh, tremendous performance by Bivol. I don't think that we can overstate that. He was, I mean, he didn't get a knockout, but he was dominant in the win. That's the word that I will use. Dan, your thoughts in the recap mode as Bivol remains undefeated and validates the Canelo win with a win coming back here a few months later in uh, in the Middle East over Zerto Ramirez. Listen, I thought Dimitri Bivol, as I described it in the post-fight story that I wrote, I described it as a masterpiece. It was a masterpiece because he did everything he wanted other than get the knockout. He never let Zerto Ramirez in the fight in any way. He controlled the pace. He controlled the range. He controlled everything. He threw punches. He threw combinations. He hit him to the body. His jab was solid, but he didn't really need the jab that much. But really, what he because the jab's not going to work so great on the southpaw. But what he did was threw a tremendous amount of straight punches down the middle that landed. Uh, and again, threw the combinations and just outworked him completely, showed more skills. Uh, landed way more cleaner punches, and Zerto was very plot. I mean, we all knew going into this fight, it's not a secret, that, that Ramirez is slower and is not as technically sound, but that he can be a rough guy at times, and and maybe he was a lot taller and seemed a lot bigger, that he could maybe impose himself on Bivol to a certain degree and, uh, and and force him back a little bit. But really, it was it was Bivol that was forcing Zerto Ramirez back much more than I think anybody would have thought was the case. He landed a lot of good counter punches. Um the thing about Dimitri Bivol, he's so smart in the ring. He really, he, I don't think he's great at anything, frankly, but he's really good at every aspect of boxing. Some guys are great punchers or they're great defensively or they're great with their jab or they're great with their uppercut, whatever it may be. Bivol's, there's nothing I look at and say he's, other than his intelligence, I guess. He's, he's, he's super intelligent in the ring. But in terms of the physical things, there's nothing to me that he does that's like overwhelming. But everything he does, offensively, defensively, both hands, the foot speed, the movement, you know, you, you name it. He does everything at a, an above average sort of level. He's, you know, I, I don't know if he, he uh, validated the win over Canelo. We all knew he was a very talented guy going into the Canelo fight. And even though I picked Canelo, I did not think it was such a huge upset by any stretch of the imagination. So he's now 21-0. He's made 10 title defenses of this belt. He just bumped off the the clear and bona fide number one challenger going into this fight. If you were making an honest representation of the light heavyweight division, I think most people would have had Arthur Better BF number one, Bevel number two, perhaps a few that might switch it. But number three was basically by acclamation was Gilberto Zerto Ramirez, and he put the hammer down and he won a shutout. You know, basically, I mean, the official scorecards were one eighteen, one ten and 117-111 twice. I also had it 118-110. I think one of the rounds that I gave to Ramirez was really because Bivol just was taking a breather, frankly, and just didn't do a whole lot that round. Uh, But other than the knockout, there really wasn't much more he could do. You could tell just a few rounds into this fight that Ramirez was going to have to change something drastically to even have a prayer to win. It was 
you know, he let him fight at his pace the whole time. And if you let Bivol get into the groove and just fight at, fight at his pace, you're, 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 you're hopeless. You have no shot. Okay. So along those lines, great segue here. I thought as the fight, and this is easy to say when we're sitting back, we're watching it, covering it, uh, observing it. I really thought as the ninth round became the 10th round, the 10th round became the 11th round. Where's the urgency from Zerto Ramirez? Cause here, not unlike the Morel fight, You've got a one-sided fight. It's got to be pretty apparent. You can even have a delusional corner, but I mean, it's got to be pretty apparent to him. I don't think I'm winning. Did it surprise you? Easy to say now. He didn't try something different tactically, didn't come at him more because the 11th round and the 12th round, you just didn't see urgency. You didn't see him trying to land the haymaker. Yeah, not only did you not see urgency, but in the post-fight interview that he did on DAZN with Chris Mannix after the fight, he kind of half-hearted. I mean, he said he thought he won the fight and that the judges were doing their I, I got the feeling like he that was more bravado. Like he was he was saying it, but I don't think he was convincing anybody. And he, he didn't really sound like he was convinced himself. That was just sort of the right the uh the you know, he's a proud guy. So I kind of I, I didn't like really like I wasn't offended by it, even though it was kind of ridiculous. Um, but he didn't have urgency, at least outwardly, and like maybe in his mind he did, but he certainly didn't show it in terms of I'm gonna throw way more punches in the last round. And uh, as one-sided as the fight was, it wasn't like Bivo was doing big punishment, big damage mm-hmm. to him. Totally the opposite of really what was happening in the Morel fight that we talked about. But uh, Bivo is a very brilliant technician. He he is extremely smart. He is a guy very focused and motivated. The thing I love about Bivo is that, you know, he never talks about like, like he said, I don't care about Canelo in a rematch. I know I'm going to make a lot of money, but for him, he says it's about the legacy you kind of have to believe him the way it's he's the way he talks about now he got paid really well obviously for the for the canelo fight he got paid really well on saturday for the uh the ramirez fight but it wouldn't shock me if that if he wants you know another direction now he wants to fight better bf to be undisputed that's been uh the dream and by the way it's not like something that's newfangled for him that he's just come up with i remember talking to dimitri bivol many fights ago i think it was literally 10 fights ago because he had won the interim title the first time i ever covered him in person was when he won the uh, interim title against Samuel Clarkson. So however many, that's about 11, 11, he was like 11 and 0 or something like that going into the fight. And uh, I remember talking to him and surprised that his English was as good as it was and uh, talking about how he won't be the undisputed champion. That's, you know, how many, I don't know, what's that, six years ago, seven years ago? Right. Whatever it is. And, uh, you know, he's, he's in position where if he can somehow manage to get that fight, but here's the thing, you follow the way the schedules work. You know, he just has this great victory uh, over, over uh, Zerto. He wants to fight better BF for the undisputed better BF has three of the titles, but he is next going to be fighting Anthony yard in the mandatory WBO defense that will take place in England, probably uh, sometime in, uh, in February. And, and then who knows if they'll be able to make that fight. It's a hard fight. And one's got one guy's on match room boxing events, fighting on the zone. The other guys on ESPN events fighting on, you know, for top yep. rank. And that's complicated. Uh, it's real. And it's, and the thing about it is, although it's a hell of a fight, I don't think anybody, is going to look at that fight from a commercial standpoint, not in terms of how excited we boxing fans would be for it. It's not a kind of fight that you can make as a pay-per-view. It just, it just isn't. It's no offense to those guys, but they don't have that kind of um, big, big following that's going to, you know, there's nobody, nobody's paying huge money to, to, to tune in for, you know, two Russians to fight for the undisputed light heavyweight title as good of a fight as it might be. Um, so that, that makes it hard to make, which is why as we've chronicled over the last few weeks, how grouchy I've been about the, the late year schedule, you know, there's a good chance it's going to extend into at least the early part of next year too, because I just don't see that fight happening. Um, 
you know, once once better be of uh, takes care of the yardy fight, which, you know, he's going to be the big favorite in. Uh, we'll see. And Bivol made the point. He says, look, I know how the business works. If I can't get that fight, you know, I'm, I'm not going to wait around. If I can't get it in the next, you know, four or five months, then we'll go do something else. What that something else is remains to be seen. It certainly could be a rematch with Canelo once Canelo comes back from the wrist injury. Uh, he was asked, would you move down to super middleweight and challenge Canelo for his titles? Undisputed. He was sort of intrigued by that because it'd be a chance to become undisputed in the other weight class. But then he made the point, I'm a really a light heavyweight. And, uh, you know, that would seem to be uh, surprising if they made a deal on that basis that he would drop down to 168. But stranger things have happened. You never know. But uh, all in all, it was a great performance from Dimitri Bivol. And let me add, and I wrote this also, and I think you may agree with me. I feel like that was the kind of victory that locks up fighter of the year. Uh, honors for Bivol because here he I'm is. With you. The only variable may be Tyson Fury if he's like spectacular against Chisora. Again, Chisora is not a big all. time contender. But well, I mean, hold on, hold on. Why? If, why beating beating De Dylan White and beating? I'm, I'm with you. That would be the only chance it would be somebody else. But I'm agreeing with you. I think he's no, the fighter of the year. I wouldn't After even put Tyson Fury in my seven. in my top candidates if he beats if he beats uh, Chisora. What would the be the only in, other one then in your mind other than Bebo? I don't know that there really is another significant the other one other candidates than in my that mind fought are, twice. That fought twice. Who did? I said anybody else that fought twice. Yes, here are, the, here are the candidates as I see them. My opinion. I'm discounting Tyson Fury because I don't care about a win against against uh Chisora. And and although it was a great win against Dillian White, it was expected. Yes. So whatever. I'm not gonna I don't consider him to be the fighter of the year candidate. So and I don't consider uh, the 154-pound Charlo, even though he scored a very big win. He came undisputed. All credit to him. It was a great fight, and it was a great performance. But if you only fight once, and there's other guys that have similar accomplishment that fought more than once, it becomes hard for you to be a bona fide candidate. So I I would say he could be, be a candidate, but not the guy that's going to win. So the guys that seem like they could at least be legit candidates that would get support from some people are the following in no particular order. If Naoya, in a way, blows out Paul Butler for the undisputed Bantamweight title in December, uh, like most people think he will, he could be a candidate. He will have beaten Butler to be undisputed. There hasn't been an undisputed Bantamweight champion uh, since 1972. That's a big deal. That was back when there was two belts. There was never an undisputed champion at Bantamweight when there were three belts. But again, Paul Butler is like a 10 zillion to one underdog. And, uh, you know, he kind of was in the right place at the right time to get that belt that he has. So, again, nothing against him, but it would be tyson douglas-esque if uh, he somehow beats noya in a way mm -hmm. his other win was a very solid and big win where he blew out uh nonito donaire in their rematch after having a tough 12 rounder with him a couple years ago in their first fight that was uh the consensus fight of the year uh, again but nothing against donaire who's one of my personal favorites but he was pushing 40 years old it's you know wasn't a surprise that noya in a way won the fight maybe only a surprise that he blitzed him in two rounds so but again he could be on that list devin haney traveled 8,000 miles to Australia and he unified the lightweight division and become the undisputed champion on the other guy's home turf after George Cambosos was coming off a huge victory against Teofimo Lopez. Again, becomes the first undisputed lightweight champion since 1990 in the three belt era when Pernell Whitaker did it. Um, but again, and I thought what Devin Haney did was brilliant. He fought a great fight. He had the balls to go to Australia. Never, never moaned or complained once about taking the short end of that stick. Just wanted the opportunity. He did it twice because he had to give him the rematch that took place. But his year, again, great year, huge accomplishment. He fought the same guy twice. Yep. And he was the favorite in both fights. And he did exactly what he was supposed to do. So big accomplishment. But in terms of b he was a big under, not a big underdog, but certainly an underdog against Canelo. 
And he was the favorite against uh, Zerto, but it was so dominating. You have to give it credit. And the only other guy that's on that list who might have a chance is uh, Jesse Bam Rodriguez, who came out of being a, essentially a prospect, taking a world title fight on six days notice. Um, he was going to be on that card already and just, again, moved up the card, scored a, a brilliant victory against Quadras, a little shopworn, but a very respectable fighter, former champion, one of the big four of that uh, of that weight class of this era, along with uh, Roman Gonzalez, Juan Francisco Estrada, and Srisaket Sorungisai. So he beats him for the title. Then he beats in his first defense. You know, he had filled in for Sorungisai. Now Sorungisai is healthy. He makes his first defense. He blows away. Sorungisai knocks him out, two-time champion, and then comes back. And I won't say he struggled, but it was a little bit of a tougher fight than most people expected against Israel Gonzalez that took place on the Canelo uh, Bevel undercard. So he goes three and zero, becomes the youngest active champion in the sport today. Scores three wins, uh, two against you know veteran sort of older fighters, but good names, and then another one against uh, you know just a regular opponent. So yeah, and three wins, winning the title, defending the title. You know that's a hell of a year for the young man. Um, for my money though, and it's with no just nothing but massive respect for everybody that I just mentioned. Demetri Bivol beat Canelo Alvarez, who was the fate was the big favorite and the pound for pound king at that time. Yes, he was moving up to light heavyweight, but he'd already been at light heavyweight once before and scored a blistering knockout against Kovalev, who may have been past his best days, but it counts and he won a title. And then he comes back six months later and he doesn't fight just a nobody. He fights the, the bona fide number one contender, a former champion also at super middleweight, a guy who was 44 0 and a tall, rangy, bigger southpaw. And he lays waste to him with his skills. Yep. That is a fight. And that is the fighter of the year. That would be a fighter like of it. the year candidacy. Even though this was a down year, in my opinion, for candidates, that's a fighter of the year campaign in other years also. Yeah, he was that good. I agree with you on that. All right, to wrap it up here in our final few minutes, Chantel Cameron did win the junior uh, welterweight unification women's world title fight with American Jessica McCaskill. A uh, fairly uh, decisive victory. Two of the cards were two-point cards. The other one was more decisive for the third card on the unanimous decision. On that quick thought, on that on the co-feature, Matchroom? So she retains her two belts. She retained the uh, WBC and IBF uh, women's 140 titles. They also had on the line in that fight the vacant titles at of the WBO and the WBA, which she won. So Mask McCaskill, of course, was coming down in weight from welterweight, who she's undisputed at welterweight. She was dropping back down to 140, where she had been a champion before, uh, a unified champion, if I remember correctly. And so that made for like a pretty interesting match. You know, Cameron was undefeated. Uh, and McCaskill just never looked like right early in the fight. She kind of looked off, like she was uncomfortable, like there was some kind of whatever the issues. It just was not the normal, very active, very sort of, Go get you, McCaskill. However, she did close the gap big time in the second half, but she let a little bit too much get away from her. So even though the two scorecards, as you mentioned, were 96-94, she was always sort of playing catch-up. I thought it was interesting. Chris Mannix pointed out the same thing at the beginning of the broadcast. He also pointed out she's been here for over three weeks, getting acclimated, but he said something doesn't look right. We're only speculating. We're thousands of miles away. Maybe it's the weight cut. We don't know. We don't have an explanation. But those key rounds at the beginning added up. And it's Cameron's Listen, biggest win of her career, period. Oh, definitely. But sometimes, you know, in, whether you're a professional boxer or play some other sports or you're a broadcaster or you're a boxing writer or whatever, sometimes you wake up and you're just not having your best day. You just don't feel 
at your best. And uh, that's not for that's us for- on this podcast, baby. We're always having our best days, or at least we put up a projected brave face. No, I'm just saying, like she, she still she didn't fight like a bad fight. She just sort of basically got out hustled enough in those early rounds to where Cameron was able to put enough in the bank to hang on at the end. And uh, you know, all credit to her, she's undisputed now. Now, what I thought was interesting, actually. Because, I mean, I didn't really think it was that great of a fight, to be quite honest. It was just sort of like a very average kind mm-hmm. of fight. But what I found intriguing was that at, at the in the post-fight interviews, Cameron's suggestion was that McCaskill go back to welterweight, where she's undisputed, and that Cameron would follow her to welterweight, and they could have a rematch where instead of McCaskill coming down to challenge for the undisputed and her two belts at 140, that Cameron would go up and challenge McCaskill for all of her belts at 147 in, in a rematch. That would make things kind of spicy kind of make things interesting there was really i guess there was no sort of reason let's say for a rematch in the 140 division even though the scores ended up being pretty close on the two cards but that that can be intriguing if there's no other big fight out there for cameron or mccaskill i think they still represent a pretty good size fight for for uh for both of them and that that might be some intrigue if there was a weight cut problem mccaskill will be back where she feels more comfortable it would be a challenge for cameron having to rise in weight and uh be for big stakes all right. Also on that card, uh, Shav Rakamov ends up winning um, his junior uh, vacant junior lightweight championship fight. Uh, Zelfa Barrett of uh, of England was in control, knocked Rakamov all, uh, down earlier in the fight. But this is why it's boxing. This is why you got to keep watching. And eventually Rakamov caught up to Barrett and got him out of there. Dan, your thoughts on that third fight on the Matchroom Show in Abu Dhabi? Well, it sure didn't look good for Rakamov early, as you mentioned. He got dropped in the third round. But not only did he get dropped in the third round, but Zelfa Barrett, who I've never viewed as like this big, big puncher. So I felt like, you know, Rakamov, he got clipped with a nice punch. But that, that Barrett was going to probably, if he's going to win the fight, going to probably win a decision. And it seemed like those first many rounds, he was just outboxing him. You know, he was a little bit, I felt like he was a little bit longer, a little bit taller, and really just sort of doing a boxing number on him. And uh, as Barrett kind of got a little tired, I mean, he'd never fought anybody at any serious uh, at the level of the opponents that Rockmuff had. So his his record, in my mind, was largely manufactured, frankly. Although, look, he showed himself he's a good fighter. I'm not going to take anything away from him. But Rockmuff was much more experienced. He fought for the world title before this same belt against Jojo Diaz uh, last year. That was the fight where Diaz didn't make the weight. He got stripped of the title. Rockmuff was eligible to win it, but he ended up fighting Jojo Diaz to a draw, so the title stayed vacant. Uh, he was supposed to have the opportunity to fight Ogawa for this title. Ogawa got an exception. They gave the fight to Cordinia, Joe Cordinia. Cordinia scored a sensational knockout against Ogawa, won this title, and he was supposed to fight against Rakamov in defense. He got injured. They stripped him of the title because the mandatory was due and he had already used up a medical exemption. So they paired Rakamov against Barrett. So Rakamov finally, as the fight's wearing down, uh, you know, he scores two knockdowns and he gets him out of there in the ninth round. And it was a big win for Rakamov. And now, uh, he's going to have to fight when Cordini is back. That's going to be the fight that's going to get made. So while he gets the title and you can never take that away from him, and it was a good performance in the end and a nice knockout. Um, to me, I can't really consider him like a quote unquote true champion. I want to see what he can do with Cordini. That's the fight that should have happened. And we'll see that next. The, the junior lightweight division TJ is in massive flux right now. Mm-hmm. The four titles, you know, three of them were vacant until the other day. Hector Garcia had the upset kind of came out of nowhere, got one of the belts. Now you have Rakamov, one of the other belts. The two other titles are still vacant. Uh, Shakur Stevens had given them, you know, had been stripped of them because he didn't make the weight. So you go from having a weight class at 130 where Stevenson asserts himself against Valdez, comes back and dominates Contasau, 
but because he didn't make the weight, he gets stripped. So you go from having like a pound for pound guy as the champion with two belts, who everybody review you know views as number one in the weight class. Suddenly he's stripped and he's moving up to one thirty five, and the the the, the division is sort of empty at that moment. Rakimov fills the, fills one of those vacancies. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity for other guys who might move up from 126. If there's a few other guys linger, lingering around at 130, like an Oscar Valdez, who's going to fight uh, uh, Emmanuel Navarrete for one of the titles. But Rakamov against Cordinha is a good, solid fight for that division. And it, in my mind, anyway, it seems like that would be an exciting fight based on what I've seen from these two guys in the recent time. So uh, the point I'm making is 130 pounds is wide open for somebody to really uh, assert themselves. And uh, one of those guys that can put himself in that picture is Rockamoff. All right, fair enough. A couple of news items, and then we're done on the Fight Freaks Unite recap. Uh, <clears throat> they did make an announcement on the Showtime broadcast about an addition to the Showtime schedule in December. Go ahead. Yes, uh, December the 17th. Very, very good fight, if you ask me. Uh, and that's with, uh, we've talked about on this on this podcast before, we've talked about, uh, the Errol Spence-involved fighter, uh, uh, Frank Martin, mm -hmm. who's an excellent lightweight prospect, uh, making his way up the ladder. So they paired him with Michelle Rivera, another uh, light lightweight that is maybe not, again, at the top level, but both rising guys. Rivera's gotten some good attention on Showtime. And uh, they've matched them. They, they're, they've call, they're calling it a title eliminator. Uh, I've asked. Nobody seems to know which organization is the eliminator for. So <laughs> I'm not sure which it is. I went and looked at the ratings, and I couldn't kind of really kind of like figure to it joke, out. An eliminator to be named later. Just we'll figure it out, right? Yeah. Well, in any event, it, <laughs> it'll be an eliminator. What eliminator or not eliminator? It's just a. It's a very interesting, good quality fight uh, between guys who are on the rise, guys who have a future in this weight class. Rivera is exciting. Frank Martin's a super skilled guy. Was a tremendous amateur fighter. Anyway, that's going to headline what they're calling a Showtime Special Edition, which basically means it's a it's a fight at a certain price level. So, but for for fans, it's just certainly a good a good a uh, good matchup, and it will establish a guy to keep an eye on in that weight class. One guy's going to take a big step forward because, again, similar to what I mentioned to you about the 130 pound weight class, 135, which at one time was just absolutely jam packed with with really outstanding guys, is starting to thin out. Tifimo Lopez has moved up in weight. Ryan Garcia has moved up in weight. You have guys who have, uh, you know, Cambosis took the law, took two losses. So he's, you know, he's still in the weight class and can compete, kind of maybe have to regenerate himself a little bit. My point is uh, that 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 weight class is starting to, uh, you know, Shakur Stevenson is joining the party in that weight class. Um, but it's going it's undergoing changes right now. And the point is Frank Martin and Michelle Rivera are that next group of uh, um, in that next group of fighters that are can certainly launch themselves towards the top. And by matching them together in a PBC fight, the winner of that fight will take a big step forward to filling the void, let's say, of some of these other top young fighters that have exited the weight class. Devin Haney, of course, still rules the division. Yes, sir. He'll probably defend against Lomachenko, who's still in the division. But then I would expect Haney, win or lose, he'll be exiting the division also. All right. Uh, also, uh, you have learned... Uh, the Josh Taylor Jack Catterall fight being made official for when? Give us the latest details on that as well before we're done. Well, not not that it's made official, just that what I am told by people that are involved in the fight is that uh, it is in the process of being finalized. That's not exactly a secret, but they've identified February the fourth for that fight. Most likely will take place at the SS SSE Hydro in Glasgow, which was the same venue where they fought in the controversial Josh Taylor victory uh, decision that took place uh, last February. This is the rematch. And Taylor 
look, he was really stung by the tremendous amount of criticism that he didn't deserve the victory that he got in that fight. And even though it's not his fault, he's not scoring, uh, there was a huge backlash against him. It reminded me in some ways of the backlash that Timothy Bradley suffered when he was given the decision victory against Manny Pacquiao. Now, this fight with Catterell and Taylor is not nearly the controversy of that fight. That is not even close. Pacquiao versus Bradley was a huge, 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 one of the biggest controversies in the history of boxing, in my estimation. In any event, Bradley took death threats. Bradley was threatened. Bradley was criticized by everybody. Again, like Taylor and Bradley, they're not the guys scoring it. So the ire should not be on the boxer. It should be, if anything, if you think it was that bad, it's, it's really the judging situation. In any event, Taylor was so stung by that criticism, he allowed himself to be stripped or vacated all these various titles after he had worked hard to become undisputed. He's down to the WBO belt when he fought Catterell in their first fight. It was a WBO uh, mandatory defense. He's going back in the ring with him. It's probably a big money fight for him relative to the other ones that were uh, on the table as far as mandatories go. And uh, they're going to they're gonna have the rematch uh, in February. It'll be uh, an ESPN Plus event in the United States. And there's going to be a lot of publicity around that, around that given the, the huge controversy that stemmed from their first fight. And huge uh, is what we will say about uh, Josh Taylor in that part of the world, especially in Scotland. And um, yeah, he'll be back. And a lot of people are very intrigued in the UK about the rematch. With that, I think we pretty well covered everything. Are we good on the news and anything else? that we have i believe we are mighty one for another weekend we are good for another weekend and we have a you know i think it's a little bit of a slower weekend coming up not that that's necessarily a bad thing we've had a lot of fights uh in the last uh, few weeks but uh you know things do do peter out a little bit you got the uh sonny edwards felix alvarado uh flyweight title defense coming up uh during next week you've got janabek uh your boy janabek al McAnuley <laughs> defending against uh, denzel bentley in the espn plus card on the 12th so we got uh, back with the zone back in uh, in Cleveland for uh, your boy Montana love taking on. They're Steve all Spark. my boys. Just keep going. All your boys. Yes. So, but I mean, the point is, so there are fights coming up, but I don't think next weekend, even though there's you left events, out I, Floyd Mayweather in the exhibition against say it again. You, you didn't let me get to let to get to that on Sunday. That's like the culmination of what I think is a busy, but kind of slowish weekend. And by the way, also on the 12th, you have, Ricky Hatton and Marco Antonio Barrera in their uh, exhibition match, which I, I'm going to watch that. I'm sort of intrigued by that just for fun. But on Sunday, of course, you got your, you got Floyd Mayweather against your boy Deji over in uh, in uh, the UAE in Dubai. Uh, I'm still trying to because figure out what as I said to you, uh, whenever you're fighting my boy Deji, you have to do it over in the Middle East. You have to do that. Uh, I don't quite understand that one. I mean, because Mayweather's had other exhibitions that have taken place. And besides the Logan Paul one that was here in America that Showtime got behind, that they did in Miami, the other ones, they've gotten some attention, but this one seems to be a much bigger deal to the organizers, whoever is putting this on. It's on fight. It's on regular integrated sports pay-per-view on linear TV. They're putting this thing on ppv.com. This thing is on the zone pay-per-view. It's like they think this is like a thing. I guess your boy Deji is like a big, big deal over in England. I, I never heard of content, him until, content creator, social media guy. I or, never heard of him until Mayweather was fighting the guy. So, you know, maybe I'm just old or not in tune with that group, but I know some of these content creator folks. I just never heard of that dude. So uh, they did a press conference the other day and, you know, Mayweather is going to, you know, put on his bank robber uh, outfit and go get some, go get another bag, I guess uh, <laughs> the next week. Good for him. Listen, I'm not knocking him. If you can get paid a shitload of money to do what you enjoy doing and what you're good at, 
and you're not risking your record as a 50-0 Hall of Famer, uh, and you can get paid a ton, go for it, man. Yeah. Still have some, have a good time. Good way to end the podcast. Uh, again, we are mindful of the situation with Idos Yerbosanuli, and we are hoping for the best in that. You may have a further update, as I have said several times now, as Monday becomes Monday afternoon and Monday night. You may have a further update that it is better news with him. We're going with what we have on Sunday night as we record and release Fight Freaks Unite as we do off of the weekends. Okay, so one more note about all of this. You and I will get the preview done for the weekend and the fights you just listed, and then I've got to head to Munich, Germany with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers off that dramatic, crazy Sunday night win, the NFL Buccaneers to play the NFL Seattle Seahawks in Munich, Germany. So I'll be on the way to Germany. I'll be there this weekend. We'll have items up on the site. We'll have the preview podcast. But Guten Tag for me, I've got to keep up with it from Germany. Got the Buccaneer game on Sunday morning, U.S. time, Sunday afternoon, German time. And then I'm flying all afternoon, all night from Germany. We will get to full boxing coverage. I just want you to know I'm transcontinental, brother. I am transatlantic. Better you going... than me. That's all I yeah. can say. So I'm, I'm headed to Munich. We'll be in touch on all of this. Great job on the recap, as always. And uh, we'll catch up with you later in the week. All right, that sounds good, DJ. There is Dan Rayfield. I am nearly TJ Reeves. Follow or subscribe to this podcast feed, the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. You get Fight Freaks Unite off the weekend on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. For now, we are good. Fight Freaks uh, Unite is Dan Substack, bigfightweekend.com. Our Big Fight Weekend preview comes towards this weekend. It'll be out on Friday. We're good for now on Fight Freaks Unite. Bye.